Well, I asked you uh, at the beginning, uh, everybody online is not privy to this or listening to it later, but have you listened or seen or read a story or something, a movie that was inspirational that caused you to change something in your life? And you guys were kind of hemming and hawing on that. And the reality is this, we've been in Jude for six weeks, this is the seventh week, and today is the conclusion. And I asked a really pointed question, which is, over the six weeks of being asked to contend for the faith, has, has it made any change in your life? Has it made a dent in what you think? And the question is not really rhetorical. Because Judah said to contend for the faith actually looks like doing something, not, not just hearing what it is to contend for the faith. But the problem here is that our indifference to the reality of what we're supposed to be doing is the problem. Indifference towards the reality of what we are supposed to do to contend for the faith is the problem. I'm already getting animated, so I'm going to tone it down right now. Okay, um, here's the deal. This is, a, uh, this is an overview of the entire letter of Jude. I've kind of color-coded it. Don't worry about being able to read it for a minute. I just want you to see that there's a greeting, and then there's a giant red section. And the, the red section is everything that it means to contend, and it's a warning. Jude is given lots of information of a warning about something. And the book is pointless if you don't heed the warning. And the reason why we're doing this series is because we, we kind of have this way of looking at the world and fretting about how are we going to make it and what is it that we're supposed to do and why is the church so impotent towards what's going on. And it's really easy to kind of huddle in and say, it's so bad out there. But I'm going to remind you that Jude is not writing this letter to condemn the world. That's, that's already in and of itself uh, not a problem. It's the problem of the church being indifferent to the fact that people are coming in and he says, you're unaware of it because you're, you're asleep. And so he's asked you to wake up and he says, wake up and contend for the faith. And so this is a letter to the church. And so he spent a lot of ink, if you will, on the fact that you need to contend because here's what's going to happen if you don't. Already in among you are people that think this way, are people that live this way. And if you think this way, and if you live this way, guess what? You're going to be part of their destiny. You're going to be part of what they receive. And that's not what you want. So then he goes to a little command section, which is where he, he turns to a, a but you phrase in verse 17. And he says, but you. Remember? He says, remember what was said, that there's going to be all kinds of people coming in. And he says, but you keep yourselves in the love of God. But you make sure that you have mercy on people who are doubting and make sure that you save some from the fire. Make sure that you have mercy um, on, on even hating the garment that is stained by the flesh. And so we've kind of had this little section and then he's going to change at the very end and pivot to the doxology. Uh, a doxology is pr- the shortest part of what's happening here. And a doxology is the, the most important part of what's happening here though. The doxology is the means to accomplish everything that Jude has asked us to do. He didn't put it on the front end, though, because if you hear this first, then you might be tempted to just rest in this, thinking that there's no need to contend for the faith. And here's what um, you need to know about a doxology. It's, it's simply two words. And the first word is doxa, which means, do you know? How's your Greek? It's okay. Glory. Okay. And the second, the second word, or part of that, is from the, the, the Greek word for logos, which is word, or, or knowledge, or ideas, or, or purpose. So when it says in, in John that Jesus was, in the beginning, the word, 
And the word was made flesh, that's the word logos. So it's more than just a spoken word, if you want to think about it that way. And so if you want to think about what a doxology is, it is the purpose spoken to the glory of God. Okay? It is God's glory spoken. It is God's word in words. It's God's glory in words. And so he's going to, he's going to point you to the only thing that can help you. He's going to point you to the only thing that's going to be the strength and the purpose for, for contending for the faith, and that is God himself and his glory. And so the way the doxology works is that all of the stuff in, um, all the stuff in red can't happen without you doing something in the yellow, right? All the stuff in the red, all the warning stuff about what's happening, that, that, that's purposeless unless you accomplish what's, what you're told to do in the yellow. And what you're told to do in the yellow, you can't do on your own without what's in the white. Without the doxology, you can't accomplish God keeping yourself. You can't accomplish having mercy on other people. But the way that God accomplishes all of the stuff that he wants to do is by you contending for the faith. And so here's what's at risk here. We are supposed to be exhorted to keep ourselves, but this is not like a, a task that's unfinished that you have to complete. It's a promise to rest in. It is something that you've, you've already been given the, the, the promised uh, goal of achieving it, all you have to do is not leave the means of getting there. And the means of getting there is to hold fast to the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. The faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. That's what Jude is so um, focused on. He, he said, I wanted to write to you about salvation itself, but then I saw that there was a, a more pressing need. And so I, I want to um, not so subtly Press on the fact if you could sit in this letter to Jude for six weeks and think to yourself, there's nothing in this for me. There's nothing that I need to change in my life. This has not inspired me to change anything. I don't see anything in here. And here's the problem with that. You might not think that because you're in agreement with the red section. That doesn't seem that far off. That's a problem. And that is, that's the subtle temptation to think that, that because God says, I will keep your salvation secure, I'll make sure that you get to the end to think there's, there's no involvement from you. And that's one of the deceptions. There, there's, there's sort of three deceptions, and they all revolve around the same idea. That being saved doesn't actually include changing anything in your life. It's the same old you doing the same old things, but now you've changed from bad guy to good guy. But nothing in your world has changed. Nothing in your mind has changed. Nothing in your life has changed. But the problem with that is that we're told, inevitably, the correlation between a new birth and a new life is life happening, and it's, and it's um, seen in the fruit of what you do. So there has to be something in you that's happening on the outside if there's new life in you. So you might be deceived into thinking, like many of these people are, that I can just change uh, or say that I've changed, but there's no evidence of it in my life. There's no evidence of it in my heart. So I just remain in sin. Well, that's a problem. Jude pointed that out. Everybody that thinks that, that, that this is some kind of... Um, Grace is some kind of excuse to remain in sin and to indulge yourself is foolish. So there's a, a, a subtle problem in our thinking when we, when we um, approach things that way. And so um, there's also the, the problem of thinking that because um, we can't um, earn our salvation, that we, um, it also follows that we can't unearn our salvation and therefore we can just sin without, without regard. That's, that's the, sort of a, the fruit of the same tree, but it, it comes out in a different way. And he's also warned us against that. And so all of this is to tell us that there's no way to separate the value of holding fast to the faith, but trusting that God is the one that's holding you. 
And what that means is there, there's got to be some way that this is coming out in your life. And so we're going to just focus in on um, the doxology here. It's, it's two verses. It's, um, it, the, the key point is here. This is, this is God's goal. This is why he's keeping you. This is his intended purpose because he's going to make you blameless. And the reason why he's going to do that is because he's the one who is able to do that. And the means that he's going to do it by is all the stuff that follows that because he is the one um, uh, through Jesus Christ who is our Lord and, and Savior. And he has glory, he has majesty, he has dominion, and he has authority to do this, to accomplish this. And so his main goal is to, to present you blameless. You can't do that on your own. You are not blameless. I'm not blameless. And so the only way that happens is if God does it for us. And he does it for us by us um, contending for the faith, by us actually exerting effort. And so um, we have um, what I see as 21 separate pieces of the doxology. I'm going to move rather quickly through them. But if you think about this being seven threes, right? Jude likes to work in threes. And so here we have the perfection of threes to end our letter to Jude. And so my intention this morning is to get you to think of you less, to think less of you, to fix your mind and your vision on the one who is able because he's bigger than you, he's greater than you, he's more glorious than you. And once that happens, everything that, that matters in the relationship with God is based on your knowledge of and your acknowledgement of God's glory. You have no glory, he has all the glory. And the more that you um, rebel against that, the more you steal glory from him, the less you show that you're in relationship to him. But the more that you fix your eyes on the one who is glorious, the smaller you get. And the, the more able you are to, to walk in faith. And faith is simply acknowledging that you need to depend on something other than yourself. So meekness and humility is important. And seeing a, a great and vast picture of God and his gloriousness is the only way that you adopt the right heart and the right mentality. I need to take a breath and pray. So I'm going to do that. And then we're going to get to the word this morning. Father, I pray that you would use um, the brief time that we have and you would open your word to us. That you would just... Um, Show and display your majesty and glory in all that you've done and all that you've accomplished and what you will do for us as your people. And so in the next moments, I ask that you would, by your spirit, move in us. Help us to, 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 to be moved by you, to be humble and meek in the, the presence of your word so that it can do what it's intended to do, which is to form us into your likeness so that you would be pleased by your people. So Father, we thank you for this time. Pray that you would keep me from air. Keep our ears open. Give our hearts softness to receive what is good and true. Fix our eyes on you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I have abundance of scripture, and I don't want to distract you with scripture. So if at any point I script over some scripture and you were like, what did he have to say about that? Just come ask me afterward. I won't get to it all, but I need you to know that every single aspect of what I'm going to say is redundant and abundant throughout Scripture. And so as we kind of go through this, I'm going to touch all the necessary parts that I think you need to see it, but just know that I had to do a lot of cutting. 
I had to do a lot of cutting so that you didn't get distracted by these other scriptures so that you would just see the, the, the simplistic value of, of what we're told to do here and fixing our eyes on God. Are you ready? Now. Now. Jude is going to say now because he means now. If you forgot what now is, it's right now. It's this time, which is the last times. Which means that when you look at the world and you, and you are confused or you're, 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 you're discouraged and, and it just seems daunting and, and hopeless, that is exactly what was prophesied. That's why he said, remember that the apostles and, and Jesus himself said that in latter times, here's what's going to happen. People will not endure sound teaching. And many false prophets will arise and they're going to say things to you like, it's okay. Sin is okay. And we ought to just align more with the world. And the thing is, that prediction is not made about everybody outside. That prediction is made about the church. And so you need to understand that now is referring to the time when people will not endure sound teaching because sound teaching just holds up the truth. And the truth always exposes us. And we don't like that. And so now is to get our attention focused on what what period we live in and to to hear this. There's only one... um, metric that's useful or necessary that you need to ask, okay? You, you need to ask, do I listen to truth when it's presented? And, and what is my response to that, okay? Does it offend me? And when I am offended, do I allow that to shape me or do I resist it? Do I say, oh, I don't want to hear any more of that. I'll find somebody that tells me what I want to hear, largely somebody that already agrees with the way that I think, which is exactly what we're told will happen in these times, People will accrue for themselves teachers to scratch their itching ears. That just means people don't want to be told something bad. They want to be told something they agree with. And so they'll find for themselves people that won't tell them truth, but will tell them good things about themselves. And you don't need somebody to tell you good things about yourself. Know who loves you? You love you. You know what? You need need somebody that can honestly tell you the truth about you. And once you know that, then you can do something about it. And if you hear the word of God and, and you resist it or it's frustrating to you, John, uh, Jesus says in John 8 that whoever is of God hears the words of God, but the reason why you do not hear them or you do not heed them in a way to listen to them is because you're not of God. So if you find in your heart this resistance, this rebellion, you, it's, a, it's, a, it's a exam time. It's, you need to look inside of you and not say, is Mitch being so mean so as to say all these mean things to me? It's not, a, it's not a personal vendetta. If the truth comes out and it offends you, let it offend in the way that it's meant to. Jude is not warning against the encroaching false ideologies that will proliferate in the world. Yes, that will happen. That's going to happen, but that's not the problem. It's inside the church. And so as we look out and we see all kinds of evil things that we once knew to be wrong, that we didn't ever have a question about now being called virtuous. And those who tolerate them are celebrated. Oh, that, that pastor's enlightened. That church really has uh, an, an eye for love. They really know what's going on because they're not, they're not calling out things where other, these other churches that are just mean and bigoted, right? And so that's, that's the day that you live in. When you, what you feel in your spirit when you seem to be overwhelmed, is actually a good thing. That tells you that you are seeing what truth is and you're seeing truth sometimes not prevail where you wish that it would. But you need to know that you ought not to lose heart from this. Now, um, let me go next. Now to him. Just like we're told to 
um, not focus on ourselves, but to focus on, on something else that is, that is more worthwhile. The more you focus on you, the less able you are to see who God is. Um, when, when Peter is, um, sees Jesus coming out to him, remember, on the, on the storm and the waves, and he, and he tells him, Jesus, just you know, call me to come out to you, and I will. And Jesus says, come out. And then Peter steps out of the boat, and he walks on water. And then, remember, he falls. He, he sinks. And then he cries out for help. It says he, he looked at the waves and all of the storm that was around him. And in that moment, that's when he begins to sink because he took his eyes off the, where his perspective should have been, where his focus needed to be. Colossians 1 tells us that everything is made through Christ, by Christ, for Christ. It is for, whether it's rulers, dominions, authorities, all of creation, all of history, everything that will be and everything that ever was is for God. It's going to be by him, through him, and to him, says Romans 11. Okay? It's going to terminate on him. And if you're focused on any other thing, you're focused on the wrong thing. And so Jude means to take our face away from either the storm or the waves or the discouragement or the trials or yourself or some other thing that you think your hope is in and to focus it on to something else, to him. The exact wrong response for faith is to begin to look into ourselves for a solution. And yet that's what we most often do. When, when, we're, when we're discouraged, when we're worried, when we feel like things aren't going well, we look at ourselves and say, why am I failing this? Or why is this so hard? And you need to look to Christ who is unfailing and your faith which will not fail so long as you look to him. And I want you to notice that the him, who, these two words are connected. The who here is a him, not a what, not a that, not an is. There is no there's no teaching, there's no church, there's no philosophy, there's no celebration, no memento, no memorial, no power. There's nothing else, no thing that an is is. There is a person that you have a relationship with. To him who, not that, that will. God is the one who is. And that's why our faith is not in a thing, not in an idea, not in a religious observance, but in a person. Our, our relationship has to do with our faith, and our faith is our relationship. And he wants us then to focus on the one who is something. What? Who is able. The one who is able. Let me. The one who is able is not the one who will be able, not the one who was able, but the one who right now, in the midst of your present chaos and circumstances, in the midst of all of the daunting ugliness of the world, in the midst of whatever your doubts are, is able to do something. Able, able is capability. It is, it is power meets authority meets um, execution. To, to be capable of something is, is not always um, um, exclusive, but in this case it is. When God is able to do something, that means something else is not able to. Because God is the one who has all of the authority and is able to do it, 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 it rules out any other ability of something to, to usurp God's ability. L listen to a few of the ables in Scripture. In Daniel chapter 3, as, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are, are bound for the furnace and they're, they're told what their fate will be, they answer to this, If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. God who is able to deliver us out of the fire furnace, but even if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve another god or worship a golden image. 
And then, just a few verses later, in 29, King Nebuchadnezzar himself makes the same confession. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their house is laid in ruins. Why? Because there is no God who is able to rescue in the way that their God is. In Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. 2 Timothy 1.12, he is able to guard until that day that which has been entrusted to me. Hebrews 2.18, because he himself has suffered when he is te- when, and was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. If God is able, then nothing else can be able. If God is able, nothing else is able. That's an exclusive able. That's an important kind of able. I, I want to give you two times where we see that this is true. In John chapter, John chapter 10, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is. Why? Because my Father is greater. There is no one who is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Romans 8, 38. For I am sure that neither death, life, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Is there anything that is not on that list that you can think of? No. There's no outside force which will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. If God is able, no one else is able. When God has ability, there is none that can Go above God's ability because he has ultimate power. Am I yelling at you? (laughs) This is the best news, okay? He is able to do something that no one else is able to come over the top of, to change, to usurp, to get in the way of. What is he able to do? He's able to keep you. He's able to keep you. And the word keep there is guard. And it's the same word um, that's used of the jailer when they throw Peter in jail and he's, and he's commanded the, the prisoner, uh, the, the guard is commanded to guard securely the prisoners. Think about this. God is the one who's on watch. He's on duty and he's able. There ain't nobody coming to come and steal what he has, what he has taken. There's no one who is able. That's what this word here keep means. He is guarding you. First Peter 1.5 says this. By God's power, you are being guarded, but importantly, You're guarded in a certain way, and you're being kept. You're guarded. You're being kept through faith. How is God keeping you? How is no one snatching you out of the hand of the Father? Why is is no one able to do that? Because in faith, God is keeping you. So that the answer to everything is to look to the one who is the source and the relationship of our faith. So we look to our faith as the means of God keeping us. The, 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 that little yellow section when I, I gave you the overview of the letter, the things, but you, but you do this. That's how God's keeping you. That's how you exercise your faith, by, by, by being mindful to participate in what's going on. The best news is that the one who is able to keep you is keeping you, and the one that is keeping you is able to keep you, so you must persevere in that. Jesus is always the answer. 
If it's a Sunday school question, Jesus is the answer, right? You can, you can pretty much bet that Jesus is the right answer, and right here he's the right answer. If, if you ask, how am I being kept? The answer is Jesus, faith in Jesus. If you are not sure about something in your life, you look to Jesus and whether or not you are exercising faith in that moment. And we spend a lot of our time um, fixated on other things with our eyes not on God, exercising our faith in ourselves, stealing glory for things that don't matter. And that is not exercising the, the, the faith that we've been given, and that's not being kept. John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but I will raise them up on the last day. He is keeping you for a purpose. He's keeping you to to do something with an end goal, to raise, he says, it up. What does he mean, it? Well, he's able to keep you from stumbling. Um. A couple years ago, we went on a vacation to um, um, Branson, and they had, um, it was called an, an adventure park, an air adventure park. And essentially this, it's a glorified um, climbing, cl- climbing course up in, in the trees and up on, on these scaffoldings. They run these um, high tension wires, and, and you can kind of scale things and climb things and go across things and, and do things that are ridiculously dangerous that you would never do without some, some kind of security. And so you show up and you pay your fee, and they give you a little kind of quick little safety training course. But here's the thing. They give you a harness. You put that harness on. The harness is designed in such a way that there's actually two, there's two safety clips, and you can't unclip one without clipping the other one in. It is impossible to fall unless you knowingly remove yourself from this, this safety equipment or actually take it off, okay? Now, here's, here's what is, is being communicated here. What is not being communicated is that you will never sin. God is able to keep you, it says, from falling. And the idea here being communicated is falling so as to not be retrievable, to fall into sin but be irretrievable, to fall in. And, and off of something, but not, not be able to get back on. So here's what happens. You, you go, and they give you the little safety course, and, and you can kind of set your eyes, and there's some things that are really difficult and some things that seem relatively easy, but either way, at some point, you have to get off the ground. You put the harness on, they check you, and once you get off, off the ground, it's the very first rung of the ladder. You have to click in your security harness. And so no matter where you go after there, even if you completely let go, I mean, you just absolutely blow it and you fall, you will always be hanging by this this safety line. This is what's being communicated here. It doesn't matter if you should stumble into sin. Do you stumble into sin? Absolutely. What's being communicated here is that you will not stumble into sin in such a way that you would be lost. The safety harness of your world is faith in Jesus. Faith. And that's what keeps you tethered to him. Now, here's what the deception of the world is and what Jude's been trying to communicate. You can go and you can show up at the Air Adventure Park. Stick with the metaphor here for a minute. You can pay your fee and somebody can promise you that there's no way if you put this harness on that you will ever fall down. But, you know, there's no reason to risk it. It, it is, it's, it's, it's always going to be there. It's certainly intact. You can wear it around the park. You can go get your hot dog. You can get some nachos. You can do whatever you want to do, but never actually leave the ground. And this is what is being, 
what is passing for Christianity, but it's not Christianity. It says you can be the same person you've always been and risk nothing. There's no change in you. But what, what God says is that when you're born again by, by, by the Spirit of God and by our help, you, you're gonna, you have to mount something. You have to get off the ground. And whether you make a little bit of progress or, no, or, 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 or a lot of progress and you attempt great things for God and you fall along the way, he'll never lose you, but it does include getting off the ground. And people are walking around with harnesses saying, I'm just like you, but no, I, I do whatever I want, and, and I, I'm never going to be lost, and they've, they've never really been born again. And this is why people have um, such a hard time with, with God's sovereignty in this and, and what it means, and the reality is that they've, they've never bought into the truth. This was not where I was going this morning, so I'm going to keep moving, but the point is this, what we are warned from, from doing in that in that section of Jude is this. From, from buying into the lies of the world that, that faith makes no difference in your, in your world, that faith has no difference in your life, that your authority is your own, there are no boundaries, you can do whatever you want. That's what's being manifest in the church. And he says that's not faith. But if you're keeping yourself in the love of God and he's keeping you, faith looks like, you know what, you risked some things. There was this moment, I'll embarrass her a little bit, where Eva was going across this bridge. There was no um, kind of side rails, and it was kind of like platformed out, and it was just kind of this suspension um, bridge with gaps in between it, and she stopped in the middle, okay? Now, here's what happens. If you stop in the middle, you can sit down, and uh, you could fall off, and you can call for help, okay? And what they do is they bring a ladder, and they, and, they get, and they push you back up there. They get you to the next platform where you can rest again, okay? And so I'm kind of waiting behind Eva, and there's no way to get past somebody when they're on the safety rails. And I'm just calling to her, you can make it, you can make it, you can make it. And so we go through this whole emotional thing. She can tell you about it later. And eventually, like, she, she finally realizes that no matter what, even if she falls, I'm assuming this is what she realized, it's okay, she'll be okay. That, that something else besides her has her. And this gives her the confidence to finally stand up and walk to the other platform. I was so proud of her, okay? This is what God wants for us, to trust him so much that he'll keep us, that you make progress in the spiritual life. But you have to make progress and not be content to say, I, I've risked nothing. It makes no difference in my world. I've listened to Jude for six weeks, and it's not motivated me to change a single thing about my life. God will keep you in the harness of faith. Why? Because he intends to do something incredible. He's going to present you. This means to make you stand. He wants to, he wants to stand you up in, 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 in a kind of prideful way, in a way that's, that has respect, that has um, renown. Why? Because every other person or every other being that has even had a vision of God in his presence or his glory or in heaven has immediately fallen to the ground. They say things like, I'm unworthy, right? I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in an unclean people. And these, this is the kind of response that we have in, in light of God's glory. But what we're told is that God intends to keep us in, in from stumbling in an ultimate way so that he will make us stand in God's presence. 
in the presence of his glory because he's going to present us blameless. This is the, the pivot point. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. That God intends to present, yes, even you, blameless. No one deserves that. You can't earn it. This is why it's so important to understand the fact that you bring no righteousness and you must have the righteousness of something or someone else. Otherwise, you will be crushed by God's glory and by his judgment. And so we, we, we have this promise that he's going to keep us and he's going to make us stand. We'll get to where he's making us stand. Blameless. And the word here has to do with that perfect sacrifice, the blameless, spotless lamb that's sacrificed on our behalf to, to cover sin. You are kept and made to stand because we will stand before him, listen, as his bride, as the bride of Christ, and we're told that he's going to present us without spot or blemish. He intends to purify you, and he's doing that along the way. And ultimately, he's going to get to that goal. It's not, I hope to get there. It is, this is where we're headed, blamelessness, perfection. He's going to present you in something that you don't have. This is only possible because of the truly spotless righteousness of, of God that's given to us. The idea of righteousness, not our own, given to us as a, as a garment, is, it's, it's rich throughout the Scriptures. This is one of those times where I'm not going to be able to read all the Scriptures to you. But there are maybe kind of three familiar places where this shows up in, in, uh, in some parables that you might remember. The first one is in the parable of the wedding feast, where a man is, is throwing a, a feast for his son who's going to be married. And remember, he invites people, and they, re, they reject his invitation. And they all have these sorry excuses why they can't come. And so he says, listen, just go out, invite everybody that you can get, highways and byways, find the good and the bad, and bring them all in. And so what happens is they do just that, and they have this wedding feast. And he shows up. And as the master comes in, in Matthew 22, it says, But when the king came in to look at the guest, he saw there was a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Listen, the, the question is not like, how did you sneak in? It's why would you? The wedding garment was something that was supplied. He says, why would you, why would you come and take part in a wedding feast without just putting on the garment that you've been given so that you are appropriate for the occasion? You're appropriate for the occasion of being presented as, as, a, as the receivers of the son. Well, okay, here's another one. In the parable of the prodigal son, once he's gone into his wild living, he's, he's done everything that he shouldn't have done, he comes to his senses, he decides to return back to the father. And it says that the father sees him and he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. That's not the son's robe. That's the father's robe. It's, the word there is not the best robe. It's the primary robe. It's my robe. It's the, the father's robe that he tells him to go and get. He says, put it on him and put the ring on his hand that signified he was part of the family and put shoes on his feet. There's another moment where David and Jonathan, it says their souls have been knit together. David has to go before King Saul. And Jonathan says he stripped himself of the robe that was on him. See, Jonathan is the king's son. But he strips himself of his own armor and his own clothing, and he gives it to David. Even his sword and his bow and his belt, that's, that's everything that signifies the protection and belonging to the king. 
And David went out and he was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul, who in this moment is king. That he gets to bear the, the clothing and the armor that isn't his. That we exchange who we are and what we are with a garment given to us, that garment of righteousness. That's what we get presented as and why we are the bride without spot or blemish because we're given a garment that is not ours. That's what God intends to give us so that he would present us blameless. Where? In the presence of his glory. You can think about this in in two ways. There's the presence of his glory and his coming. That's the one Jude told us to be anticipating, to be looking for. When Jesus comes back in his glory with his holy ones, what are we going to be like? Are we going to shrink back? Or will we be caused to stand because we have been clothed in his righteousness? There's no need to recoil. Finish the line for me. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. In his glory, we get to be in that presence, in the throne room, spotless with a righteousness that is not ours. When Jesus comes, we're told every knee will bow. And every tongue will confess. But the unique people of God get the honor of standing in that presence of his glory. There's also the presence of his, uh, the glory of his current presence. Let me tell you this. In Psalm 1, it says that the, the, the evil and the wicked will not stand in the day of judgment. Okay. 1 Peter 4.13. It says, Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. When when you right now, in the midst of this world that is tempting you and crushing you and trying you and pressing in on you and you, you bear reproach, you're getting some of that glory. You're standing in God's glory. You get to, to bear that as, as his presence. And he's doing all of this, not because He has to, not because he's forced to. He's doing it because it gives him joy. Because he wants to present you to himself with great joy. And this joy has been debated. It goes both ways. Because guess what? It's going to be his joy, and you're going to be pretty happy about it too. With great joy, you will stand in his presence. As he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? He intends to present you to himself, blameless with joy. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The God of the universe will be overjoyed with you, for you. And he does this because he's pleased with what he's presenting himself. He's not ashamed of it. We are his prize. We are a ransom people bought by the blood of his precious son, that are washed pure and clean and blameless and are made to stand holy before him. Now we're going to get to the conclusion. It's going to speed up here just a little bit. He moves to, again, fix our attention to the only God. Again, to the the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God. The Lord is alone. He's unique. There is no one like him. Fix your eyes on this God. It doesn't go 
to anyone else. Your attention to go to no one else. The thanks, the glory, the honor goes to no one else. He's our Savior. He's not just the God who made things and let them go, but he's our Savior. He's the one who's bent down, who's condescended, who took on flesh so that he would rescue for himself a people. He's our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is not just our Savior, but he is the Lord. He's, he's, he's uniting the two. They're not at odds with one another. He is praised not just as the maker of heaven and earth, but as the redeeming God, flesh and blood, who is Lord. He is the strength in our weakness. What man lacked in our capacity to get to God, Jesus comes as God and fulfills as man so that we would be made whole as humanity to stand before him. He's the Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Be glory. Glory is the weight of God. The, the, the profound vacuum of respect that he is owed. The reputation that he has. He is glorious, and so he is owed glory. He's going to kind of bind four statements together to kind of collectively paint a picture for us. Be glory, majesty. It's kind of an old word. We don't use it very much. It's kind of poetic, but it has to do with the beauty of God on display. The majesty of God. So the glory combined with the majesty is the honor due to God, and then the majesty is the greatness of God on display. And then he's going to add to that dominion, which is the realm of authority. It's not just a domain. Like You live in a house, and that's your domain. Dominion has to do with the right of that domain, to exercise it. So here he, he says, glory, majesty, dominion, and then he's going to add one more. This is the only doxology that includes four elements, and he says, and authority. If you could think about it this way, these aren't individual separate elements that you need to think about um, as, well, he's got this, and he's got this, and he's got this. If you think about it, he's painting the full picture of who God is in all that he can do. It is the endless praise that he is owed. It is the boundless wonder that we should give him. It is the limitless rule of his um, dominion, and it is the inexhaustible power to exercise it. All of that, it is his glorious majesty, his glorious dominion, his glorious power, and his powerful dominion, and his powerful majesty, and his powerful glory. See, they're all knit together to paint to you the picture of a God who is able to exercise authority, and the ability to exercise authority, and the right to exercise authority. And he's not just doing that sometime later in the future. Because uh, Jude is going to say, before all time, he had these things. He's not going to come into possession of them by some merit along the way. It, there's nothing that God will acquire since eternity past that he will get sometime in eternity future. He already possessed these things. And so somewhere uh, we need to reconcile the fact that because he has it before all time, he also has it now. And we keep to, we, we always kick forward the idea that God is going to rule forever and ever in eternity, but he's also ruling now. And the only reason he's not doing it with greater glory, with greater majesty, with greater dominion, is because we, his creation, have exchanged the glory of the creator for the glory of self. And we steal God's glory. That's what Romans 1 says. So as far as you and I are concerned, he doesn't have it so far as we think we are owed it. And so he says he has it before all time, 
and now and also forevermore. Forever God will have all of this. God was worthy before anything existed. He did not create anything to make himself, to add anything to himself. It was, there was nothing necessary. He was totally sufficient, and yet he created. And a God that deserves all glory could not have created anything that would be less than the most glorious creation he could create. Stick with me for just a second. A God of perfection will not call something finished that is incomplete. He will not present to himself anything less to himself than the best. And so because the only thing that could be perfect and the only thing that could be the best is for him to present to himself himself, he does just that. In sending Jesus to be the righteousness that you and I don't have so that we would be clothed in that, so that when he presents you and I to himself, he's seeing him. Your faith is in that. You are not going to be maintained in the faith, kept in the faith by your not sinning. You are not held because you don't sin and you're not held by the strength of your confession. You're held by the truth and the meekness of coming to God and relying on Him to hold you. There's no other hope. He has it now and forevermore. It says, the glory that we, that we have now, once you put it in the expanse of eternity, it doesn't matter how sorry and bad and broken and difficult any other adjectives you want me to throw in there? You can't put enough in there that after a span of eternity is not shrunk to nothing. The eternal weight of glory crushes anything that you experience now as difficulty. So that's why Paul says, I count the current sufferings as nothing when I compare them to the eternal weight of glory that are being prepared. The glory that we enjoy because it's given to us and that we get to be with God forever and ever. When we've been there 10,000 years, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. You know the hymn, yes? Well, because that goes on and on and on and on, this life that really does matter shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. And so all of the things that you think are so important or so difficult come to nothing. But the things that you did, that were in faith, are the things that actually matter eternally. Put that in your perspective and put those glasses on and look at your world. And ask, are the things that I'm doing, are my stealing glory from God or am I resting and trusting knowing that this is for His glory? Am I acting in a way that accords with faith? And here's the conclusion of the matter. Amen. So be it. Let it be true, not just in, in reality, but for me as well. It's a, it's a personal assent. Yes, me too. You're adding your, your affirmation to it. And Revelation 12.10 says this. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. And the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. They conquered him. But how did they do it? By the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. 
the, your, your ultimate confession of conquering is not how, how good you did here because you knuckled up and made it happen. It's by confessing the blood of the Lamb that's the word of your testimony. And um, that's how we overcome. And then, furthermore, Revelation 19.6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out. So get this, this is the throne room scene of heaven. And what's happening? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory. You're not giving Him something He doesn't already have. You're giving Him what He's owed and what you have to give for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. That's you and I, the people of God. And we made ourselves ready because it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen. It was granted to you. It's given to you the privilege to put on something that's not yours. That is the righteous deeds of the saints. That is what, now you say, wait a second, it sounds like, that sounds like I'm supposed to be clothed in the works of God. John 6, let me clear this right up for you. The disciples asked, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus replied, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one whom he has sent. Do you, do you want the right to wear something that's not yours? Yeah, here's the work you need to do to do it. To believe in the one whom he sent and that his blood is what you need to cry and what you need to plead, and that is your amen forever and ever. Are you with me? <laughs> so let me wrap this up with First Peter, and we'll be done with Jude. Remember First Peter, in this few chapters here, is really, they're, they're very synonymous. They're, they're analogous sections of Scripture. And Peter has this to say, Blessed be the God, our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to inheritance that's imperishable. It's undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. It's guarded by God for us. It's waiting. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for the salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice, even though now for a little while you're grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith the thing that can't fail, the harness that won't fail, the thing that you need to move forward in, even though you fall, you will not ultimately be lost, is the exercising of that faith, the thing that Jude is telling you to contend for. It's not to go out and punch every person in the nose who you think doesn't agree with the Bible. Your contending for the faith is making sure it's sure in you. More precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, that may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Father, we thank you for the morning, for these truths.